0: Hello everyone, you are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host Austin Yeh and...
1: Mayu, what's going on everybody? Austin, it's been like two weeks, or the last one, I don't think you were on with me, but...
0: Yeah, it, it's been a while, and <laughs> last week, neither, us, neither one of us was on. Back at it again, back at it again. New year, yeah, name's a snow day, there's a snow day for the podcast. Oh, that's, <laughs> true. that's true, yeah, even though we do this thing virtually. Um, yeah, things are, things are going well on my end of things, um, like catching up on some bookkeeping, cleaning that up for this year, not looking forward to taxes and seeing what I need to pay. I sold a property, a four unit. I was mentioning that earlier, but like it went firm Four units. Is the one you that you, uh,
1: you negotiated, you locked up. Did you close it?
0: Yeah, it's closed. It was closed. We had to wait a month and a half for the remaining tenants to leave. And then now it's vacant. So yeah, I am selling that off the market, just cashing out, making a little bit of profit. And what 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 else is there? There's nothing really juicy with that actually. Like it's been going pretty smoothly, surprisingly, for the first time in real estate. Um well here, yeah, like well, why not just uh, why not just do the work? Why not do the work? I have a couple projects going on, including that one, it would have been four projects. I'm not particularly greedy if I got the money I wanted, made a profit. I'm happy to sell it cash out because right now, I think the biggest impact for me and the biggest concern for me in 2023 is going to be income, right? Not necessarily liquidity and stuff. I'm very fortunate such that my liquidity is actually slowly going up as we make some sales of our properties that are underperforming. Uh, It's more so an income thing. And I'm not okay having less than a six-figure income doing entrepreneurship. So it needs to cross that threshold for sure. So as I sold that property, that definitely gives me a good chunk of income in 2023. And I'm just thinking forward what I need to do. Like if I should pivot into fix and flips, we're doing wholesaling, but who knows how long it's going to take the market to recover. And we have overhead on the wholesaling side of things. So yeah, it's mainly that.
1: So if you earn the exact same thing at a corporate job and in entrepreneurship, you would go corporate?
0: Not necessarily. Um, (laughs) It depends. So right now, as you know, that, we're clearing a lot of the debt on my name from the point of view of like assets, right? Not by debt. I don't mean I'm underwater. I mean, like properties held on for two to three years, but I'm holding the mortgage on. It wouldn't hurt to get borrowing capacity again because I'm going in with like, I'm selling yeah. my primary right now, which is I'm also have debt on it's, uh, my name's under it. So pretty much after all of these sales, I'm I may have one maximum two properties under my personal name. And I wouldn't be opposed to reacquiring on the A lender side and focusing on six units because, you know, RBC finances up yeah. to six units and get a couple of those on my name. It's not something that I'm quickly looking to jump into, right? Yeah, I yeah. know I can definitely do the commercial side as well, but path of least resistance, man, it's something that it's an option for me now, uh, which yeah. I never thought it would be, right? But that being said, I'm happy with entrepreneurship in terms of my hours, dollars per hour, because like I... When you were saying like, oh, would I switch back the same salary? I would be working way less now than I would on corporate and my schedule would be so much more flexible. Like, You me, are like, working way less now than you would in corporate. Yeah, and that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah. I'm working way less now and I'm still looking to hit six figures for sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It wouldn't be that easy of a transition. But the main yeah, thing the tax is, the off is the and borrowing. Yeah, on. yeah.
1: Tax write-offs, all that kind of shit. No, but it's interesting what you're saying as well. I'm, I'm basically in the same mindset of it's got to be at least a fourplex if it's going on my name now. Definitely have the borrowing capacity. It's just So now when I go MLS, it's just Realtor.ca filter for four units and above and see what we can get, right? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, so so we sold the single family house, you and I, that was on your name. <laughs> That's probably one of the properties that I think should
0: close today. If I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a little bit of hiccups there. We we're being strong-armed a little bit from the seller's agent Not sellers, we're the sellers, the buyer's agent. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, man, because everyone always goes, and I've given this example now to
1: like a couple of people over the last like two or three days. Like You and I would have just taken a quick sale. So we sold off two properties in the last probably what, 30 days or something like that, roughly speaking. Both of them, we would have just taken a quick buyer sale option if we knew that there was peace of mind no questions as is condition decent profit for us even if it's not max dollar right and that's a perfect example i think of just the top type of properties that we even try to buy is from people that just want a quick clean clean transaction right that being said we also had our rise event this weekend there was about 60 people and it's always a good sign when everyone majority i think something like 95% of people stayed on until like the entire completion of it so if hours. you what was it? It stayed the entire four hours. That's the yeah, man, I'm I was not. exhausted. I was like, holy shit. I can't believe everyone stayed on this long. But uh, I guess everyone's cameras are off. So who knows, really. But so if you guys are interested, we are thinking about doing one more thing like this last event. And every event we do, we basically create the deck from scratch. Like even when I was telling my dad, he's like, oh, so you just like represented the same thing from the last one. I'm like, no, <laughs> like everything is completely new. It's a uh, lot.
0: It's a lot. It's hours and hours and hours of work. <laughs> but
1: <if> yeah. <laughs> So we're thinking about, we've done three events, I think so far, three, maybe four. So we're thinking about making all the recordings available to you guys. It should basically just be a crash course, like everything you need to know for real estate. Like if you walk out of this and and maybe you're not going to know the super technical concept behind like commercial financing or some or commercial like acquisitions and stuff like that. But for someone that's looking to buy their first, second or third property, I think this basically bundle of all of the courses is going to be something like 15 plus hours of content should be more than enough for you guys to so follow along the rise network page and uh we'll definitely put it out there
0: yeah we're finalizing pricing at the moment but it's going to be on the affordable side for sure like everything we do it eh? we're like everything we're like it's going to be cheaper guys. than a coaching call with you or with me or like a one-on-one <laughs> one-hour coaching call that's for sure so yeah keep it so on. discount austin right, what was that we're so discount we're discount what do you mean like our hours you're saying we we're, should no, we're like there? the dollar store bro <laughs> One last update I forgot to mention is with our property that that's on, I don't even know if I should give the street name, but we have a student rental that's a duplex. And I think we chatted about earlier about um, there's a bridge project going and they're looking to expropriate it. And that kind of went silent for a little bit. We finally heard back from our lawyer and that process is underway as well. So we're not going to get into too much detail about it, but it should be an interesting next few weeks or months. Um, their lawyer tried to reach out to me directly to negotiate with me. And I was like, no, 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 no. You got to go through my lawyer. <laughs> I know how it works. I know how it works. Like when you try to negotiate with the lawyer, there's a lot of legal jargon and things of that nature that you get a little bit worried about and you get pressured to make a decision. So everything we're doing negotiation wise is going to the lawyer. Hopefully we get full market value as of March, 2022 valuations, which is like pretty much close to market <laughs> high. That would be insane with no realtor fees, (laughs) So That would be another sale if it goes through. Anyways, that covers everything on our side of things. So we're going to jump into today's podcast. We have Sal and Luca from SLG Capital. You probably know them if you are looking at buying deals, they send out tons of off-market deals and their wholesaling company, SLG Properties, but they also do much more than that. They're entrepreneurs in every sense of the word in real estate investing. So they invest in real estate, they wholesale it, they flip it, they have a construction company. We get into the changes of their business because they're so heavily involved in real estate. With the current market environment, it changes a lot in their decision-making process. So we get into all of that. It's a very relevant episode for our current market environment. So hope you guys enjoy this episode and make sure to also leave us a five star review because we're trying to hit what, like 200, 200 reviews by the end of the year. So do that as well and tune in and enjoy. Take care, all. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Sal and Luca from SLG Homebuyer and SLG Capital. How's it going, guys? Great guys. How are you guys doing?
1: Doing good. All right, guys. So usually when you have two guests, why don't you guys each just take a couple minutes to introduce yourselves, how you got into this space, I guess, like even just like discovering real estate and then deciding to jump into kind of the wholesaling side and give us like a quick rundown on each of you guys, whoever
2: wants to go first. Sure. So our main company, SLG Capital, comprises of three partners. We got myself, we got Luca here on the podcast, and we have a third partner, Jack. Our focus is kind of spread throughout a few different areas of real estate investment. The main focus would be our wholesaling business where we spend majority of our time 80, 90%. And the wholesaling business feeds our other businesses in real estate. So we have a flipping business for certain deals that we don't want to wholesale or we don't get a good enough offer, we'll flip the property. We have a rental portfolio that we own just between myself, Luke and Jack. And more recently, we even started a construction company we just offer general contracting services to homeowners and investors. Okay. Maybe just to add to
3: that, kind of the way we got started. So I think I saw mentioned we started with wholesaling. The thing that appealed to us with wholesaling was probably two things. And the benefit kind of is really coming out now in this current market. So we did one flip. It was a single family home in Oshawa, bought it on MLS and then barely scraped out any profit, realizing that even though we scraped and saved, a lot of the work ourselves. We couldn't really make a profit buying on MLS, paying market value, and we probably overpaid, right? So we kind of vowed at that point, never to buy on MLS again, but we still really wanted to get into real estate. We also both kind of had the view like, been in a bull market for so long, how long can this really last? So we wanted to minimize any market risk. So with wholesaling, not only are you buying at a discount, which gives you that buffer if you keep the property yourself to flip, but a lot of the deals were flipping the contract where really you have little to no market risk. So that's what kind of appealed to us. I think Sal stumbled upon it, watching some YouTube videos from people in the States. Then we looked into, can you
1: apply this to Canada? Saw so a few other people were doing it and then jumped right in. So from looking you guys both up on your website, you guys are both truly grad. I'm curious, do you guys like start this when you were in like undergrad or something? Or is that just like a coincidence that you guys just no, knew each other from?
2: We met at Schulich. We did the typical finance degrees, corporate finance jobs after Schulich, but we were talking when we started our full-time jobs and right away within a couple of years, we're like, long-term, we don't see ourselves working up the corporate ladders. As Luca was kind of mentioning, we started trying to see, you know, what can we do full-time to escape kind of the rat race? So yeah, we stumbled across wholesaling and here we are now. Nice. Yeah. And I think that was the same
0: thing for my, no, I think that was the same thing for myself as well. When I was transitioning from my full-time corporate job, Obviously, as real estate investors, we need some sort of active income. And that's when I stepped into wholesaling as well. You guys have been OGs in the game for quite a while on the wholesaling, Canadian wholesaling side. So I was just curious to hear what's the story behind your business? How were your first couple of wholesale deals? And how did you eventually grow out the team? Because I know it's not like an overnight process. It takes years of hard work in the background to get where you guys are.
3: Yeah. I think, you know, you can probably attest this too. The most
0: interesting thing with
3: wholesaling is, You think you're getting into a real estate business and then you realize, oh, this is actually mainly marketing and sales. So the first big hurdle to overcome was me and Sal went to business school, but we pretty much just studied finance, accounting. We had really no marketing or sales experience. Like I would never think of myself as a salesperson, but we kind of just dove in, you know, YouTube university and kind of figured it out step by step. So you're always going into another rabbit hole. So first step, how to build a website right? How to drive traffic to the website, then the marketing comes in. Then from there, you get that going, you get the leads in, and then how do we convert these leads? So that's where you're trying to understand the sales tactics, get yourself in the door to see some of these properties. And then that's finally where the real estate comes in because you have to understand, you know, what's this property worth when it's renovated? What are the renovations needed? Back everything out and then figure out what can we offer? I think just trying to think back to our first deal, I think it was a property in Welland. We went to see it. It was a complete dump. I think the seller wanted, you know, 125 or something. So we got under contract, had no idea if it was a deal because I'd never even heard of the city of Welland before,
1: you know, that week. When was this like 2017, 2018? This was 2019.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think we started marketing end of 2018. We set up our website, started marketing 2019. And then how long did you guys go before you got this deal? Like how long were you guys marketing for? I think it was two, three months, but we were spending very little at the beginning, yeah, okay. you know, just kind of bootstrapping it. Right. I like guess different time as well, right? Not as much competition yeah. at that time. So
1: yeah, okay, fair. All right, sorry, go on. I didn't mean to cut you off there. <laughs> yeah. So 125 no dealing
3: well end. Yeah. So we ended up obviously we had no buyers list. We had at the same time we were trying to build that up. Didn't really have a social media presence. Like they didn't really know where to start there, other than I think I was just posting like Kijiji ads looking for buyers. And we ended up going to another wholesaler that was a lot larger than us and they brought the buyer. So we had the deal, they brought the buyer and we split the profit 50, 50. And I think it ended up being like a 34K assignment fee, which when you're watching these YouTube videos in the States, they're doing a lot of like 5, 10K fees. So we saw this 34K, $34,000 fee and just blew our minds. Right. And that was kind of like the hook and we were in.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, why? Cause I've heard this before. I don't know from who might've been Austin to be honest with someone, but why do you think the U S has so much smaller fees compared to the Canadian wholesale market?
2: Well, I think it depends on the market specific in the U S Okay, the markets with the cheaper properties. Those are going to be the five, 10 K fees, but gotcha. I do think like these higher price markets, like California, San Francisco, I think they're experiencing similar fees to what we're experiencing here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: So that first one, I'm assuming there was some sort of a split between the 34 K between you and the other buying wholesaling agent. So how did you guys continue to go on from there? And was it at this point, it was you two and your third partner. How did you guys go about taking down that deal? Who served
2: what function when you were first getting started? I think at the beginning, we kind of split some, me and Luca kind of split some of the functions of setting up the website. I took kind of responsibility of learning the Google ads. We paid for a Google ads course. And uh, we basically learned everything on how to market on Google ads. And then once we started running those ads, we tied up that deal. We would kind of do everything together at the beginning, which we realized later on, we need to really separate our roles and define our roles more in the company. So we were doing everything. We were going on the appointments together, signing the deal, and then trying to work together to dispo the deal. But you guys were in this like full time from the get-go? When we did the first few deals, we were still working our corporate jobs. It was a bit funny. We would be taking, we would be, be getting leads in, through our website and we would step outside out of our corporate job and go take a call with the lead because right. <laughs> back then it was COVID it wasn't COVID yet. So we we're still in office. So that was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. I think
0: that's the good point you guys made at the beginning. I guess, I don't know if you directly said it, but kind of what I got from it is that you guys were learning everything yourselves, right? Like in this real estate world that we're in right now, you open up Instagram and you just flip through it. Everyone's like outsource, outsource, outsource. The reality is when you're in any startup business, you need to bootstrap and you need to learn the different functions of your business. You can't just start outsourcing everything with what capital, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's one big thing. And the second part is you could be outsourcing, but you could also be screwed over if you don't even want to put in the time and learning the different functionalities of the business, right? And that's like, even from an investor point of view, when I was working with a contractor, obviously it was outsourcing. I knew nothing about construction. That's when I got screwed over, right? So then i have to take it upon myself to learn these things now kind of fast forwarding into your partnership what has the roles kind of worked up to now like who's responsible for what because i find with a lot of businesses you don't want too many people to step on each other's toes you want kind of clear defined roles so that it leads to less arguments and obviously more efficiencies than overall in the business yeah so our third partner jackal well- he runs the construction.
3: So from day one, he was managing, like from the beginning, we were hiring general contractors and he was overseeing them. Then we went into the sub trades route. So he would find the plumber, electrician, carpenters, et cetera, and, and oversee them. And now we've actually built out our own team of laborers in house. We still sub some stuff out, but he's overseeing that. So he's overseeing the construction team, growing it. He does the quotes and he's like the site super on site every day. Then me and Sal is where at the beginning, we didn't have much efficiency because we were overlapping on essentially everything other than marketing. I think Sal was doing the paid marketing. So like Google ads, the mail, and then I would build up the SEO to drive organic traffic to the website. And then everything else we we're doing together. Like Sal said, we went on appointments together. I think this, but we tried to split it up. So like you take this deal, you take that deal. But again, growing the buyer's list, we were both doing a lot of stuff we were both doing. I think where we've gone into now is we share some responsibilities like growing the team we're still doing together. So the hiring of salespeople we'll do together overseeing the sales team or like we still share that sales manager role. And then where we've kind of split up is I'd say like the financing I'll oversee. So anything to do with financing projects, the banking, all that for the actual business and like tax planning, dealing with the accountants, the bookkeeper I'll do. And then Sal will completely oversee the marketing. So even though we've outsourced, let's say Google ads, Facebook ads, all that, like he'll still oversee it. And just to your point, like, because he did all the research at the beginning, we paid for the courses, learned it first. It's just so much easier to oversee that now to know if they're doing a good job and to really analyze the data instead of just taking their word for it. Right. And so, yeah, so basically, you know, you could say I do financing, Sal does marketing. We're overseeing sales and growing the business. And then pretty much everything else has been delegated. So, you know, we have our sales team, we have an admin, and then we have Giacomo and under him, the laborers on the construction side.
0: Gotcha. How did that org chart start to flesh out? Like who was the first hire? Why did you hire them? Who was the second hire? And even walk through some of the bad experiences, because I know with a lot of new businesses, there's always a couple of hires that go wrong, cost the business a lot of money, but we use them as learning experiences nonetheless.
3: Yeah. Our first hire actually lasted three days, I think, or four days. <laughs> so, you know, he was a referral. We posted on LinkedIn. Again, it's just another rabbit hole, right? You're trying to figure out how to hire, how to interview, how to screen people out. We had a referral from a close friend of ours. The guy interviewed fantastic. He seemed like his objectives lined up with our vision. Like I want to quit my nine to five. I want a sales job. I just want to chase commission. Right. And this was for a home buying specialist slash lead intake. So he was going to take the initial call from sellers and go on appointment, sign the deals, and I think his phone was going off over the
2: weekend, and it was just too much, and he just said, "You know, this is not for me. I'm not your I think guy." It was the Easter really? long weekend. Yeah, it was the Easter long weekend. He got a couple calls, and he said, "Yeah, this isn't for me." Damn. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious. So you had onboarded a sales or a lead intake individual, right? And before that, I'm sure like like looking at both of your experiences, it sounds like you guys were both in like asset management or financing, like those type of jobs, right? Like how did you go about learning sales or was it just like very organic? Right. Cause you could just like, the more calls you take, better you get at it naturally. Or did you guys go about like doing something to help you learn that? Cause
2: a lot of investors for the most part, they always say they end up getting a coach or something along those lines. But to be honest, we literally just dove deep straight into YouTube university. Like I think we just read books and just found everything for free online. And that's how we kind of gain most of our knowledge. I mean, now we do pay for some other stuff to help grow the sales team. I think we pay for a, a, like a sales management program by this guy named John Martinez. He's in the States. And we think it's pretty beneficial for the team. But yeah, when we were first starting, we were just trying to bootstrap basically everything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And it goes back to exactly what you said, right? Like bootstrapping early on. So you guys can use your dollars for marketing, which arguably is, is where it's better spent. But I'm curious for anyone that's listening any kind of recommendations on books that really stood out for both of you guys back then when you were first getting started or like YouTube channels that just like, cause a lot of the sales stuff, it'd be like, sometimes it's completely like unrelated to like real estate, right? Like there's so many different functions within yeah. sales. I'm just curious. Who do you guys think helped you guys most YouTube or books? Yeah. So
2: I think John Martinez has a lot of free stuff on sales specific for real estate investing. We used to follow, I think Sean Terry. There was another guy, Todd, Todd Toback, I think his name was. Um, yeah. These guys were all U.S. focused too. So you'd almost have to pick certain things because they would say certain things that would only apply to the U.S. market. And we kind of have yeah. to take that and, and you know, change it to Canadian. There was never really, and there, I don't even think there really is still a really big Canadian presence focused on growing a real estate wholesaling business. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's true. And I guess the U.S., they've got so much more publicly available information that like, I've consumed some wholesalers' content in the U.S. And it's like, what. Well, wish I could do that here, but you really can't. Right. So Mm -hmm. that's cool. So you guys started off, so you hired this individual under sales just to kind of continue off of Austin's question before we jump into flipping, how did the team continue to evolve from there? And obviously that guy lasted three days, but how did you guys continue to grow the team?
3: Yeah. So the next hire, our goal was to have someone else going to stick around. So we actually brought in a friend of ours that we've kind of worked on some other side hustles with and knew that he was a goal getter. He was going to hustle and grind it out. And we brought him in as a lead intake, take that initial call. And then we also kind of took a step back and say, did we mess up anywhere with that first hire? Right? Cause yes, you could say, you know, maybe he wasn't cut out for it, but did we put too much on his plate too fast? So we tried to take a step back and kind of split the role into, you know, someone takes the calls and then me and Sal will continue to go on the appointments and actually sign the deals. And we didn't make it like, you have to be at your phone 24 seven available for a call. So we modified the rule and I think found a better candidate. So that was the first building block. So that's what we call lead intake, taking the initial call. Then the second person we hired was home buying specialist. And that person goes to the actual house, sees the house, puts an offer on paper, gets it under contract. And then at that time, as we increased marketing, getting more deals, there was enough deal flow to hire dispositions. So someone to offload those contracts to other investors. And then I think the next hire we brought in another lead intake uh, or sort of two more lead intakes. One didn't work out, just wasn't a great fit with the team, really just wanted to punch in, punch out, not really put in the extra effort. And then the other one is still with us now. And then the last hire on the, like the office side, we call it was an admin who's been like so crucial that I can't believe we didn't hire an admin from the beginning
2: crucial in what way we went a little bit backwards i don't know why maybe it was the people we were listening to we thought the first person we have to hire is a sales guy we have to get ourselves off the sales and we have to put someone in that position but from what we learned we were actually doing pretty good at sales the first hire should have been which is ironic we did it last should have been an admin slash office manager just to take off a lot of these little tasks from our plate, so we can focus more on the deals and getting bigger fees and all that hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Counterpoint to
0: that is, is, I'm going to share my experience as well. When we were doing our wholesaling business, like a big thing was hiring, but also having the money to hire, right? Especially when mm. you knew you want to make sure your assignment deals actually close before you probably know not every assignment deal ends up closing. <laughs> so we want to make sure the assignment deal closes, we get the money in the bank before we actually make a hire. So for us, like we actually really needed salespeople. And then we got like the admin to support them. Although it would have been better to have the admin first, I think it was a bit of a risk in the sense that we weren't sure how much we could float that cash burn, right? So we Mm -hmm. needed like more of the deal flow. But you made a very good point that you want to focus on the things that ultimately drive value to the business at the end of the day, not the small little task. And I kind of want to get into the topic of pivoting, right? There's probably been multiple times you guys had to pivot or change your business strategy, For example, one time when probably a flux of wholesalers came in the market, another time, current market. We're going to get into all of that. But one of the first pivots I assume you made, correct me if I'm wrong, is getting into flipping when there was a deal, whether that be an assignment fee you didn't like or someone didn't close on it. I assume you had to close on it and flip it yourself. So how did that pivot look like? And did you end up building a team around that
2: and walk us through kind of your flipping arm of the business? We actually started flipping kind of simultaneously with wholesaling. So like we said our third partner Jack, he handles all the flipping, he would manage all the trades. We kind of used flipping as the market started to heat up in 2020, 2021. We use flipping as kind of a backup to our wholesaling arm where we would say if a certain deal comes by and we're not happy with this offer, like I don't think this is a good offer, we're just going to take this down ourselves. And it gave us a bit of leverage on the wholesaling side too where we would go back to buyers and say, you know, if you can't be at this price, we're just we're either going to buy it ourselves, we have another offer, for instance. So yeah, we've always kind of done wholesaling side by side to flipping and then adding in that rental portfolio too, where we would find always off market deals that we wanted to hold for five or 10 years. We'll say, you know, instead of wholesaling, instead of flipping it, let's just add this to our rental portfolio. And talking about pivoting, we're kind of pivoting again right now, just as the market's starting to change, where we're starting to pull back a little bit from flipping as there's a little bit of uncertainty with, Interest rates and where the prices will be three, four, five months from now when we decide to sell that property. And we're trying to focus more on the the quicker transaction side, which would be wholesaling. And again, adding now this construction arm, which is just a general contracting kind of active income type business. So how did
1: you go about with the flipping? Like were you guys
2: doing with partners and even in your portfolio that you continue to hold?
1: Like are you guys going the J V model? Are you using a lot of private money? Like and I think that's the side of flipping that not enough people talk about, which is why I'm curious, right? So it's like, how did you guys go about building out that flipping arm and especially like leaving your jobs and having rentals now and, and stuff like that? Yeah. So our
3: first flip, you know, after we started marketing and getting off market properties at that time, like we didn't really know what private financing was. Like we were scared right. of it. We were just like, Oh, you know, it's expensive. Like stay away. Right. So we brought in a JV that has good T4 income. They qualified for the property and then read on a split. Obviously we do everything, manage the, I think we paid all the rentals. All they really had to pay was part of the down payment. And then we gave them like a fixed return on their investment. So it was a GD, okay. but not your typical where they got equity. Yeah, and yeah. they put very small amount. Cause I think already been working full-time for a few years, had raised, built up some of our reserves. And it wasn't money that was the problem. It was really just stay away from private well, financing at, at all costs. That, that was my mindset at the time. And then I think we did two like that. So brought in a JV for two of them, got a lender financing. And then we realized like an A lender is not going to finance half these properties we're finding because they're dumps, right? And yeah. there's just so much more red tape. It was such a hassle that we started looking into private financing and realized like you can do it faster, easier. You don't have to pay the JV partner and you know it's going to work for any property. So we felt that was a more scalable solution. And then since then, so after our first two flips, everything since then has been closed with private funds. Whether it's from you know a MIC
1: like Calvert or we have a few private lenders that we work with. Gotcha. No, that was giving me my second question is whether or not you guys were like, I know some like flippers go like construction loan type products, right? Like 70% and then like a portion of like the renovation and stuff like that. But it sounds like it's a mix of different mix and investors and probably depends on the deal, and if you how nasty of like a pro- renovation project you guys are getting into and stuff like yeah. that, right?
3: Yeah. Typically, we'll go twenty five percent down, and then for the rentals, if it's a big flip, like let's say a hundred fifty k of rentals, we'll usually borrow, I'd say seventy five percent of that, so hundred of yeah. the one fifty in rentals as a unsecured like promissory notes. Gotcha. Just from like friends and family because you save the lawyer fees instead of registering a second mortgage a little bit more on the interest rate right. and
1: again it's just about that ease convenience right yeah sometimes the lawyers make the most money man like it's ridiculous <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, especially <laughs> when you're securing like small amounts and stuff like that oh it's so true yeah so i'm curious like with the team growing and obviously the market was really good going into 2022 like in the first couple months of the year and stuff like that right how has your business model changed and we briefly touched upon it but how has the business model changed on flipping wholesaling the team structure all that kind of stuff? In the current landscape that we're in where it's been about like six months maybe of like kind of like a slowdown, downturn, whatever you want to call it, right? How has your business model kind of changed recently?
2: So I'd say specifically on the wholesale side, as Austin can probably attest to, it's a lot harder to disposition these deals now. A lot of the buyers disappeared. There's a lot more focus now on the disposition side. So we're starting to do outbound reach to buyers. Whereas before we would send out a deal, whatever interested buyers came in, we would sell it pretty quickly. Sometimes we would even sell them for market value, if not more, which was pretty crazy. And we didn't have to do much work on the Dispo side. And then on the acquisition side, we really took our team to a meeting, like as the market kind of started to change. And we said, we have to start getting a lot better deals if we want to have any chance of assigning these properties. So we've put in a lot more time into the sales management side, working with our home buying specialists, working with our lead intake to try and squeeze these deals as much as possible. Try to get as big of a discount as we can. So that when we send it out, we know it's it's an absolute steal and it's going to sell. Do
1: you guys have any like, and this doesn't necessarily have to be for like wholesalers that are looking at like wholesale and stuff, but even people that are just like, you find yourself in a negotiation with an off-market seller, like do you have like a high level like process or like way to like negotiate down deals that you can share with the audience? And if not, feel free to say no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think so.
3: Even just to go back to your previous question of like where we learned the sales tactics, like Sal said, a lot of it came from those YouTube videos and then even a few sales books. So I know a lot of sales books seem irrelevant to wholesaling or real estate negotiating with sellers. The two that stood out for us were Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss and then Way of the Wolf by uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, obviously. And we just we found that there was tactics there that were really applicable because. The difference in selling with wholesaling is like you're not selling a product, right? And the main thing you're trying to do is qualify that lead to see if they're a good fit. So we're not calling someone or answering the call and saying, we're the best fit, we're the best fit. This is why you should go with us. It's understanding, are they a good fit and what are their needs and how can we create an offer that addresses those needs? So that's really what we're trying to do most of the call or most of the appointment is understand their situation? Why are they selling? How urgently do they need to sell? And are they willing to sell below market value? And then again, like what are the unique things that we can offer to entice them to take our deal? So once we've qualified, understood their needs, then
0: we're trying to present this offer that is exactly what they're looking for. hmm mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Our business is not the perfect solution for everyone that's the reality. exactly. And I think that's investors that are not wholesalers don't always realize that. So whenever they get any sniff of a off-market lead, whether it's qualified or not, they try to stretch it, stretch it to try to make it work, or they'll try to over-negotiate and it becomes a waste of time because that person was never going to be a lead anyways. Now, speaking about the current market conditions, obviously you're scaling back down on flipping and focusing more on the wholesaling side of things is there any changes you guys are making on the advertising side? Or have you found that what you've done in the past, and you don't have to get into the specific channels if you don't want to, but like what kind of pivots are you making internally in the team, like changing the advertising? I know on the Dispo side, there's a lot of changes and that's likewise in our business, but on the sales side, what has changed? And have you found other ways to monetize the deal? Like I know in the US, what's very popular is just throwing the
2: lead over to a realtor and getting a specific kickback. So what else are you doing differently? Yeah. So um, we're still focusing on the same types of advertising that we were when the market was good. And everyone that has some knowledge of real estate wholesaling is probably aware of them. You got the online ads, direct mail. We have tried other things in the past, like billboards and that type of stuff, but we haven't found them to produce as well. At the end of the day, the best producing marketing is going to be online and mail in our opinion. So we did pull back a little bit with the market changing, but now we're at a point where we're keeping the marketing pretty consistent. And again, really hammering down on the sales side to make sure we make a use out of every single lead that comes in. And to add on to your point, Austin, yes, we are trying to monetize every lead that we get. So we do work in conjunction with the uh, real estate brokerage that happens to be in the same plaza as us. So we send any deal that we know right away from the get-go is not going to be a fit for wholesaling and better suit for market value we send it over to them. They send one of their agents, they'll sign the deal and we get a kickback for that. We are also even experimenting right now as we started the construction company. Some of these leads, they may need renovations and they may not be that motivated. We might try to push Jack to go give him an estimate for construction.
1: Yeah. It's interesting all of that. I'm surprised not more realtors even do themselves, right? Like if you have a client that's looking to sell a property, you could like loan them the funds to like complete a renovation, then take it on the property. I think it's something that we used to hear about before when the market wasn't as crazy and it kind of died down. So it's, it's a good pivot for sure. I'm just kind of curious, like the processes, I guess, and like the tools and stuff like that, that you guys use in your business. Are there any that kind of once you've implemented this system or this tool that kind of completely changed the way you guys did your job, or do you feel like you can do for the most part with like an Excel CRM? <laughs> no,
2: no on, on the sales side, hundred percent, you need a CRM. Um, especially when we're, we're getting probably about 200 to 300 leads a month. You can't really keep track of all those leads and you know where they are in the pipeline, who has them, what lead intake manager has them, if they're passed off to the home buying specialist, if they're signed or whatnot. Without a proper CRM, in terms of another system, you need a like a calling dialer. So we use uh, we use this company called CallRail. We have probably like 35 numbers with them just to track different track where all our marketing sources are. So if we get a number from mail or if we get a number from Google Ads or Online or SEO, we know exactly where it's coming from. Yeah, I'd say those two systems are probably crucial to a wholesaling business.
0: What CRM system are you using? Out of curiosity. So we use
2: a system called PipeDrive. Okay.
0: Okay. Cool. Yeah. And
2: that's uh, specific towards real estate wholesaling. So it actually isn't. I was asking the company that manages our AdWords. I asked them what CRM they would recommend, and they recommended PipeDrive. It's a little bit cheaper, and we kind of set it up ourselves to be a proper wholesaling CRM, but it's not. Like at the end of the day, it's just a basic sales CRM that has every function that you need. And we've kind of tweaked it to what we need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, on the buyer side of things, that's where we're obviously
0: noticing the most changes. Buyers are slowly backing off. But that being said, there's obviously at least what we've noticed over the past month or so. Some buyers are slowly re entering, right? Like the first three months of where prices were dropping five to 10% month over month, understandably, everyone was kind of backing out. But as things are kind of steady and stable now, from a price perspective, because listings on the MLS is so tight and some investors are entering back in. Like, what are some of the best practices that you're utilizing to get that buyer to take action? Right. Because obviously investors have their own sort of number that they're running with. Are you going out and asking investors what number works for them? Like, how are you going about striking a deal? Yeah, I think, like you said, part of why the investors hit pause
3: I think it was a mix, like let's say majority was and the market coming down quick. I think a lot of investors got stuck with multiple flips on the market that were taking longer to sell than they anticipated. So it seems like a lot of investors just hit pause rather than saying, I'm done until the market changes. Right. And I think it's a lot of those people coming back and a lot of people, the more we see the market stabilize, even if it's trending down, but slowly, I think people will be enticed to come back into the market. The thing I always think is like these, yes, you have the buyers that maybe buy one property a year and they're going to hit pause for the next two years because of fear. But I feel like a lot of people like us, we wouldn't stop flipping or stop investing in real estate and then go get a nine to five job, right? A lot of these people, it's their job. They need inventory, right? And that's kind of the outlook we've had and felt like if we just stay consistent, we'll be able to sign deals, right? There could be a month or two where Maybe there's an outsized rate hike by the Bank of Canada and people are scared or hit pause. But I think in the long run, the good buyers will still be there. And then, what you're asking about our processes, we're trying to view the buyer more as a customer. Whereas in the past, you're having maybe a very quick phone call with them because there's like 20, 30 buyers calling per deal and you know it's going to get assigned. You know, all you're looking for is, okay, who wants to offer the most? Now, what we're trying to do is, you know, similar to when you're talking with a seller, you're trying to qualify that buyer again, understand their needs before we knew we were always going to get a sight unseen offer. I think we went over two years without showing a property on the dispo side. So two years of sight unseen offers, like we have to adjust our expectations, understand that five buyers want to see it before we would say like, I can't bring five buyers into the house because the seller is going with us because they don't want to do any showings. Now it's like, it's more of a balance between meeting the seller's expectations, but also understanding the buyer's expectations and just trying to, again, make it a win, win, win. Right. And we're just trying to build those relationships with those buyers because the other mindset shift we've had is before there was more buyers than there were deals. Right now there's probably more deals than there are buyers. So you want to entice that buyer to continue working with your company instead of going to another wholesale. And I think that's another place where these newer wholesalers are going to get weeded out because number one, they're not signing as good of deals because they don't understand the negotiation process. Maybe they don't understand the comms, but they also haven't had the experience of dealing with the buyers and putting a value on building that relationship. So again, we're just trying to focus on the relationship. Like Sal said, put a little bit more effort into the disposal side. So making outbound calls. And just, yeah, like
1: viewing it as an ongoing client relationship. (laughs) I'll be honest, like, I love the current market. I think the service with wholesalers is way better, right? I think you're able to (laughs) actually, you know, check out properties properly on market, get conditions, stuff like that, accepted. So for a lot of people, like, it's kind of mind blowing that they're not kind of taking action, but I understand the fear that's in the market, especially if you're like buying your first property, right? Where like that one property that messes up could completely wipe someone out, right? So I do want to quickly touch into, because I don't think we talked about this at all, but the investing side, I know you guys have said you've always kind of just been quietly kind of like investing in the background. It almost seems like, right. But tell me a little bit about your portfolio, how you guys have gone about building it out. Like, are you purely like multifamily? Cause I'm also assuming on the wholesaling markets, the wholesaling lead channels, it's usually single family houses, right? Maybe a duplex here and there. How have you guys gone about the investing side? How have you scaled that up? Are you only doing larger deals and and so on?
2: Yeah. So we have a, a mix of, uh, I'd say single family and kind of duplex, triplex type properties on the rental side. Our main focus was really at the beginning, as we started to grow with the rental portfolio, was really to make sure that we bought a good deal. And again, it would come from our wholesaling list. We say, you know, this is a good deal. We're going to be able to borrow this property correctly. And we're also going to have good cash flow. So the markets we kind of focused on were Sudbury, kind of single families, some duplex conversions there. We focused on Welland. We have a duplex and a triplex conversion there. We also have a piece of land that we're going to eventually build a new build triplex in Welland. And then we also oh. kind of mixed in some of these other markets like Kitchener and Hamilton, where we kind of put a mix of markets that might have some better capital appreciation over the long term. My property in Hamilton, we have uh, uh, two properties in Kitchener that we might also develop. So it's, it's kind of spread throughout. I say as the market changes, our strategy on the rentals is starting to change as well too. And we are reconsidering and kind of going back to saying we got to make sure these properties cash flow. With these interest rates rising up to five, five and a half percent, even some of these properties in Sudbury, Welland that had great cash flow before are, are not cash flowing as well anymore. Yeah. We're taking a bit of a pause on the rental portfolio and we're analyzing the markets and saying where should we go next? We're considering maybe we go into another cheaper market like Timmins or. To St. Marie, somewhere where the property prices are so low that even with these high interest rates, we'll still have good cash flow over the long term. Yeah, we just bought a
1: triplex in Sudbury and cash flow is like $100 a month. <laughs>
2: like, yeah. what the fuck? And it was like a steal. But once
1: you refinance it to the max, like, there's not going to be much cash flow left in it, right? Which is kind of the reality of it. So Austin probably is not going to be surprised by this question. I ask everyone that kind of has a call it a, a little bit more geographically like spread out portfolio this question, right? It's just how do you guys go about managing that? I'm sure you guys have property managers in place, but now you got to manage your property managers and you got to manage like, at least for me, like, NWIN like will have like all my like utility bills and like wins are in there. Right. So it's a little bit like more like centered. Right. And then I have a property in Kirkland Lake, which is a pain in the ass because I always forget about it and they don't take like online payments, but like how did you guys go about managing that real estate portfolio as it continued to grow? Right. Like was that where the admin staff ended up coming in kind of key for you guys or yeah, just tell me a little about how you manage that portfolio.
3: Yeah. So Right out of the gate, when we bought our first rental, we decided we're gonna outsource property management. We felt our time was better focused on growing the business, finding more properties and growing the team. So each area we're in, we have another property manager. So one in Sudbury, one in Barrie. The one in Welland actually is kind of working on growing with us. So she would manage the property in Hamilton and Kitchener. So we would have three property managers. And then we also have one Airbnb property in near Orillia, right beside Horseshoe Valley. So three regular property managers and an Airbnb property manager. And something we've kind of been, as we relook at our rental portfolio and analyze where we want to go next, we've also been really digging into the numbers and noticing that the properties didn't really perform as well as we expected on paper. And in trying to figure out why, a lot of it came down to probably us not being on top of the property managers. Like you said, like they're managing the property, but you, you have to manage them. Mm-hmm. And you have to, just to give one example, I was looking at our, one of our properties in Barrie, the basement is supposed to be listed for rent, right? So I was checking on Facebook marketplace for the listing and I called the property manager. I'm like, oh, like I don't see the listing. Is, did you find someone for it? He's like, oh, we take the listing down every two weeks. I guess we forgot to repost it this time. So if I didn't see like, who knows how long until it's reposted. And then on the Airbnb side, like I I set a weekly reminder now to go in, check the reviews, check the messages just to see what complaints we're getting, which obviously come, especially in the Airbnb complaints are going to come up like, Oh, you know, this door handle is broken or whatever it might be. But the problem that I noticed in digging into all this data is we're getting a lot of recurring complaints, you know, the same complaints. So we set up a meeting with with that property manager and just kind of went through these complaints and figured out how can we address them
0: and improve going forward. So like you said, you just got to really stay on top of everybody. Yeah. I think that's the difficult part of an investor that people underestimate. It's not just about getting the property manager and sending it out. Me and Mayu, similar to you guys, we sat down last week or was it, it was last, (laughs) it was no beginning of this week or last week. And we just put some properties down on pieces of paper. And then we recalculated our cash flow, and it it obviously isn't performing as what we thought it would be. Uh, With a lot of investors, I think it's the same thing. Performers don't necessarily translate to real life, right? So then now we're rebalancing, we're actually selling two properties off or or are going to try to sell two properties off. And yes, like here's the big thing. Investors are like, oh, the market might get better in three or four or five months from now. Reality is, is that the news, the, the general outlook isn't the most positive. And me and Mayu missed out on hundreds of thousands of dollars if we sold it in February, but it's a sunk cost now. <laughs> and we're just like, okay, we'll offload these and rebalance and reshift and then re strategize going forward. But man, like the, the story behind, I think it deserves some details. I
1: guess we can share it in preamble as well. But basically, there were single family houses where like there's not much cash though. It was like $50 or $100 a month or something like that. Or like break and it was even, about right? to hit
0: negative. <laughs> yeah, it was about <laughs> right?
1: to get negative. And then with the next realized- yeah, with the interest rates. Our mortgage payment hasn't gone up, but basically our entire payment is going towards interest, right? So we have no mortgage pay down. We have no cash flow. We're probably not going to see appreciation for appreciation. like one or two years on these, right? So we're like, yo, just get out of this right now and just buy something else. And I think that's the key, right? Like we're going to get out of it, but we're definitely going to buy stuff. We're both currently buying stuff as well, right? So the investing side, like for sure, it's an interesting space right now. So, guys, I think we covered a lot with your wholesaling company, your flipping company, and as well, now at the end of the investing side. So At this point in the podcast, we usually ask you guys two questions. So you guys can both answer this. I'm curious to kind of hear what each of your answers are. But how do you see your business evolving over the next five years? Luca, why don't you go first? (laughs) Yeah.
3: So looking forward, we kind of talked about, we just want to stay consistent, right? We want to have a long-term view. We have both active income and passive income, and we want to continue to build both, right? So we have the wholesaling, the flipping, and the general contracting, and we still like all three of those businesses. We think, regardless of where the market goes in the next couple of years, I think if you're one of the best in any of those industries, I think you can still make money. We've invested the time, built the teams, and we want to continue doing that. And then on the passive income side, like Sal said, we want to kind of relook at how to improve that portfolio and real relook at our goals, right? And I think the num- we want to shift our number one goal back to cash flow. That's where we kind of started when we started with the portfolio. And I think, to be honest, we had a little bit of FOMO on missing out on some of the appreciation. And towards the last year, we started buying Kitchener, Barry, Hamilton, try to capture that appreciation. We want to circle back, focus on cash flow and continue to build that. And then also maybe as we generate income from the active side, maybe instead of putting all of that into rentals, put some of it into private mortgages because when we kind of learning, as we've talked about, even with property managers, mm-hmm. you know, rental income isn't really hundred percent passive. So yeah. maybe adding that private mortgage, which I hope is actually truly passive, but we'll see.
1: Yeah. What about yourself, self?
2: Yeah. I guess just to add on that too, we're even exploring on the rental side, kind of moving forward before we've had, we've owned every single property ourselves. We're kind of open to the idea of maybe exploring some joint venture partners. Moving forward just to save some of our active income so that we have this kind of dry powder to grow our businesses and then bring in a JV partner with a good substantial amount of capital and maybe focus on one market and and buy a bunch of properties there. I'd say also moving forward just for our wholesaling business, we like to kind of keep things where they are at right now until we kind of see a shift in the market. But we want to be really ready for when that shift in the market comes, we're gonna be ready to capitalize on it. So we're gonna put more into the team, hire more, spend more on marketing and take advantage of that next upswing that comes when the market does turn.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good mindset to have. A lot of people will be backing down prematurely. But the reality is you just think about it, when the lockdown first came and all these businesses like shut down, they're all eating shit. Now the reality is the real estate industry is kind of eating <laughs> shit, right? Like it's yeah. it's cyclical. Every business is yeah, cyclical. gonna happen. It, it, yeah. Yeah, right. But The good businesses had worked through it and now they're flourishing, right? As like everything's opening up, the good restaurants have ton of customers back in. It's not much different than real estate. Yes, it's more capital intensive, but you got to see through these things. It's our turn to feel a bit of pain. It is what it is. It happens with every business. But as long as we keep optimistic over the long term, budget accordingly, then if as long as we get through this, we're going to see light at the end of the tunnel and we're all going to make a lot of fucking money. (laughs) Sure.
1: All right, guys. And the second question, and once again, both of you guys answer this, but for new or intermediate investors or wholesalers, like what's the biggest piece of advice or the biggest risk that you see for them in the current landscape?
2: So I'd yeah. say for investor, they have to really know their numbers. So one, really understanding the construction side and how much work and how much money it's going to take to renovate that property to what they want to do to it. On the ARV side, you know, really understanding what the refinance value is or what the sale value is. And I think not enough investors put sensitivity analysis into their Excel sheets. They have to factor in, you know, what if the market does drop, you know, 5%, 10% by the time I sell this, what do I have as a backup? What can I do? Can I still make a profit selling it? So really digging down into their numbers will help them kind of mitigate some of the risks long-term, especially in this current landscape.
3: Oh, what about you, Luca? Uh So yeah, risks be similar in terms of some advice, like, I would just say, and what what we're trying to focus on is just having an, a long-term outlook, right? If as an investor, your time horizon is what, 25, 35, 50 years, right? So why does it matter so much if the next two years are, there's some volatility, right? If you're investing for the long run and you have that long-term outlook, you'd more so see this as opportunity than being scared of it. And like, it's funny, because when we started investing in real estate, we're like, oh, you know, I wish we started in 2008. Like, I wish we started in 2008. The people that started in 2008 when the market crashed, they were so lucky. right? They got all this appreciation. But you know what's to say that in, in 10 years, people aren't going to be saying, "Oh, well, I wish I started in, in 2022. Right? So we just try to have that outlook. Keep an optimistic, but cautious mindset. Like Sal said, know your numbers, use the analysis, but don't overanalyze or be too fearful to the point that you're not taking
2: action.
0: Yeah, I love that advice. A lot of people are like, oh, there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of risk. Yes, if you're looking at one, two, three-year outlook. But again, like as you're saying, level-headed, being rational, understanding, you're getting in this asset for a 10 or 15-year outlook. Is it really risky? That becomes a lot more arguable, right? Because you're taking a longer approach to the investing game. Sal, Luca, you guys are a breath of fresh air, a lot of knowledge in the real estate game. Love the different businesses that you guys are operating. And kind of the way that you guys go about building a business and operating it. If people want to JV with you, because I know that's something that you guys are looking to do or get on your buyers list, connect with you, learn more. How could they best do so? So they could find us on Instagram, just SLG
3: underscore capital. And you'll see content of everything we do there, wholesaling, rentals, rentals, flipping everything. And then for the buyers list, they could sign up at
0: www.slgpropertydeals.ca. All of those will be down in the show notes below. And guys, I know it's a bit of a uh, kind of weird times for a lot of investors, but there are opportunities out there. I'm on your buyers list as well. And I see some pretty hot deals there, especially in and around the GTA within an hour there. So keep up the great work there. Again, all of the links will be down in the show notes below. If you guys enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support it. Share it with a friend. It helps bring great guests like Luca and Sal out. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care all.